Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hi, and welcome to Location Matters. My name's Sarah Butler, and I'm your podcast host. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by a couple of friends that I get to talk to regularly through the good work of Winyama an Indigenous mapping workshop that you, our listeners, haven't had the chance to hear from yet and I'm really excited that they're here today. Before I introduce them, I want to talk a little bit about the Indigenous Data Network and James and Darren, who I'm about to introduce to you, will talk about that in a little bit more detail. But the Indigenous Data Network, the IDN, assists Indigenous communities to develop their technical capability and resources to enable them to manage their data for community advancement. By strengthening communities' agency in data, The network empowers them to make informed decisions about their own development. Many of you know that we talk a lot about the digital economy and Indigenous participation in the digital economy. So this topic's really, really important to us at NGIS Australia. And I'm really thrilled that we can be going into the data side of things a little bit more today. We will talk about mapping as well. But I want to start by introducing James Rose, who is the National Coordinator at the Indigenous Data Network. James, hello. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. And Darren Clinch, who I actually got to see in person a few weeks ago, which was really, really nice. We hadn't seen anyone in what felt like such a long time. And Darren's been involved in the Indigenous Mapping Workshop. He came across to Perth. He is the Data Analytics Coordinator at the Indigenous Data Network. Darren, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be here, even if it's uh, electronically over the internet. So thanks, Sarah. Awesome. Well... Darren, I might actually start with you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Look, um, I'm a buddy of my man from Yamaji country, so over in WA. Um, so any time I get to visit Western Australia is a great opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I've been living and working in um, Nam or Melbourne, if you like, down there in Victoria um, on the lands of the Kulin Nation. And um, I joined the IDN just before the first lockdown last year. So it's been a very tumultuous ride so far. Um, But prior to that, I worked for the Department of Health and Human Services for nine and a half years. Um, I have a background in public health, but that was only a certain point where I realised that was really important for me. Um, Before that, I did a lot of work in private industry. So worked in the building trade, the exhibition hire trade. I've even picked grapes for a living when the need arised. Um, But yeah, look, I... I've kind of gravitated towards this type of role because while I was working in community orgs, I realized the paucity of access to data. And so I feel like I've been following the the river to try and find its source. And the river is the data river, really. And it's so common that um, average organizations are not having access to that. So I've, I've just slowly built up my skill set so then I could work with data better and become a conduit to the Aboriginal community. And, um, you know, probably the upbringing that I had was always having art on the wall and art that placed where I was from and art that was drawn by my mum, my brothers, my cousins, relatives, but it was always related to where you're from. So um, working with, you know, in GIS felt really, really natural. Um, and now I've had the benefit of having lots and lots of experience with health data. So combining health data with maps is like, it's just so powerful. And I feel really, really privileged to work in this space. Absolutely. Thank you for that, that lovely introduction. And James, 
Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Sarah. So, so my name is James Rose. Um, I'm a senior research fellow actually with the School of Population and Global Health um, at the University of Melbourne, um, where I've been for the last two and a half years. My role with the IDN, the Indigenous Data Network, was um, as the national coordinator for the first two years while we got it up and running. So the IDN, you know, we can talk about this in more detail shortly, is an initiative actually of the Indigenous Studies Unit, which is run by Professor Marcia Langton within the School of Population and Global Health. My background is actually in social science, and more specifically in social anthropology. So I've spent most of my career as a, as a white man working for uh, Indigenous community controlled organisations, mostly um, in the legal sphere. So I worked as a forensic social anthropologist in native title for nearly 15 years. Um, and my role there was actually heavily uh, focused on mapping, partly because native title is all about restoring traditional ownership over land for Indigenous communities through the court system in Australia. And as a forensic expert in that setting, I had to build those maps in collaboration with traditional owners and then also build up the body of evidence to support their claims to those areas. And a lot of that involved really fine-grained um, data collection, modelling and analysis. So that's my pathway into data science. And I've been doing that you know, for a very, very long time. And I'm now doing it uh, with the IDN and with Darren, which is a fantastic um, opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And James, you grew up on APY lands, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So so even though I'm white, I, I was raised on the APY lands in far northwest central Australia. Um, my father initially was a builder, my mother was a nurse. And back in the early 80s, um, they just, there were no houses. People were still living under bits of coro often um, and tarps. Um, and so the South Australian government had the bright idea of funding uh, builders to work with community members to both design and build appropriate accommodation to to local specifications and um, that's what um, that's what we did so I grew up living in a tent um, from the age of four uh, for the first few years that we were there and then in a converted garage um, while dad worked with local men to design and build houses and my mother worked for Ngunnipa Health Service or what what became Ngunnipa Health Service is one of the leading community controlled health services in Australia. And then, of course, later on, I moved to Sydney, to Euro country to work on native title. Awesome. Um, what an amazing way to be raised. I think like that's just a part of Australia that I don't think a lot of people get to go to, let alone grow up there, live there. So, wow, it's amazing. Um, you talked a little bit about Marcia. You talked a little bit about your involvement in the Indigenous Data Network from its beginnings. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that, James, and maybe just a bit more detail how everything got formed? Okay, so Marcia and the team at the Indigenous Studies Unit in 2017 organised a symposium called the Indigenous Data Sovereignty Symposium. And that was um, organised in response to the sort of growing demand among community organisations to look at this issue of data governance, but specifically data as evidence for better service delivery in the communities. And it was very, very well attended, it had luminaries from all over Australia, leading Indigenous academics and researchers. Uh, leading Indigenous um, community health service providers, um, education, um, justice system providers, and the uniform uh, message from attendants and from speakers, Darren, Darren presented. Um, I presented, the, the video is actually online if anybody wants to go and look it up on Vimeo through the Indigenous Studies Unit, University of Melbourne. The unanimous message was that there needed to be a hub 
to, to bring this discussion together and to keep it going on a regular basis and to build up a framework around which the learnings, I guess, or, or the aims of community control organisations could find a sort of a standardised uh, channel to government and to other regulatory bodies in the country. So I came on board at the beginning of 2019 to begin that process of formalisation. And over the course of 2019, 2020, even under pandemic conditions, we had the wonderful luck uh, and, you know, fortune, I should say, of Darren agreeing to come on board. We expanded our steering committee. Um, we have some luminary Indigenous scholars. Um, the co-chair of the IDN is the Dean of Medicine at Edith Cowan University, Professor Sandra Ease. Um, and we have a, the CEO of IATSIS, the Aboriginal, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, Craig Ritchie, and a number of other leading figures on board. And we now have a number of uh, research projects with the federal government, the NHMRC, and other organisations to build that framework out. So from little things, big things grow, as they say. Darren, I'd love to ask you this next question because it's something, um, like I said to the, at the beginning of the podcast, it's something we actually spent a lot of time talking about a few weeks ago, but it's Indigenous data. And it is such an important topic, especially for our Indigenous listeners um, from the Indigenous Mapping Workshop Network who, who listen to this podcast. What, in your opinion, makes Indigenous data so special and unique? Probably the first thing I would say is that it extends back beyond 17 whatever. 88, 85, whatever number you want to come up with. And I think what it does is the uniqueness of Aboriginal data can go from that very non-Westernised connection to land, not as a commodity, but as a, uh, a supplier of all things. You know, if you look after the land, the land looks after you. Um, and I think that that connection can manifest through the way that people interact. Now, obviously we, a lot of the data that I've worked with, um, particularly about Aboriginal people, there are distinct traces of how Aboriginal people interact with the environment differently, even in a modern setting. Um, one of the things that I did notice when I, I worked on a program called Improving Care for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Patients um, in Victoria, which meant I dealt with a lot of hospitals and I did produce and work with a lot of um, data from data sets called the Victorian Admitted Episodes data, which is when you get admitted to hospital, and also the Victorian Emergency Management data set. So obviously that's um, ED presentations. And you could see the behaviour of Aboriginal people um, responding to how the system provided uh, services. Now, even though we couldn't create at the time a, a causal relationship between how Aboriginal people vote with their feet, i.e. which hospital they choose to go to and which one they don't. And I remember a really pivotal moment in my understanding of how valuable mapping was to data when I presented at one particular hospital and I displayed maps which showed Aboriginal people were actually bypassing that hospital to go to a different one, even though that particular hospital had the same services. So that really asked the question, how is the service being delivered? Now, um, you may not be aware of this, but Victoria has what they call a devolved governance system. The hospitals in Victoria are not part of the Department of Health as they are in other places. So it's getting, um, improving the cultural responsiveness of hospitals to Aboriginal people when at one stage, Aboriginal people weren't even allowed to step on the veranda of a hospital, even if they were heavily pregnant, 
And we know from um, uh, examples and historical examples of Aboriginal women, how they were treated by the hospitals. And then you can see traces of that still manifesting in the way that Aboriginal people were treated when they attend mainstream services. So I remember that auditorium at this hospital, I was incredibly nervous and I was thinking, oh, geez, in my head, I was still that skinny little black kid, you know, talking about using a computer for the first time. And that little person still exists in my head. And yet here I was using all this hospital data to show a hospital that blackfellas don't like your hospital. And I think it shocked them to the core because I was using what is viewed as, you know, maybe Western technology, GIS, mapping, data visualization. And it really surprised them. I think the fact that I was delivering it to them, I was using technology and I was using robust evidence to show Aboriginal people were avoiding your hospital. And that was when, that was probably the moment in my head where I realized just how powerful it can be when you combine health data and GIS. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a really powerful example. And James, I'm interested to know some of your experience as well using maps in, in your line of work as well to support this. And as well for you, Darren, if you have other examples of where you've used maps to communicate um, topics like that is really interesting. Yeah, well, my first job out of uni um, when I finished that anthropology degree back in 2001 was actually with the Northern Territory government's uh, Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, which used to be known as the Sacred Sites Authority. And that operates under a piece of legislation that was brought in just after the Northern Territory Land Rights Act to give traditional owners control or the, the authority to protect sacred sites that were not claimed under land rights claims. So. Um, you know, people may or may not know that the Land Rights Act in seven, was brought in in 1978. It was initially supposed to have been a national piece of legislation. It's commission-based, which that which means that um, members of Aboriginal land councils can submit a claim through a, a commission-based process um, where it's assessed not by judges and lawyers, but by a registrar. And it's a sort of a box-ticking exercise. The Sacred Sites Act um, provides a kind of a development approval mechanism so that even if there's no land rights claim covering a particular area where works are being undertaken, like a freeway realignment or a mine or anything like that, even a swimming pool in someone's backyard is being proposed, the law requires under the Sacred Sites Act that that person have what's called a, a certificate, a sacred site certificate, which means that traditional owners have an opportunity to visit the area of proposed works and identify whether any sites exist and then to impose um, protection measures around that site or agree to a what's effectively a consent to destroy which is how that mechanism is expressed in other state-based legislation so my job as an anthropologist with APA, the aboriginal areas protection authority was to identify the appropriate traditional owners where works were being proposed take them to the site discuss whether or not there was any mythology or sacred sites related to the area and then draw up appropriate protection measures involving which included maps right and at the time we were working um, with sort of a, a stack of um, I think it was ArcGIS cobbled together with a, an oracle based database that sat up on a server in Darwin and we were at a sort of remote office down in Alice Springs the server in Alice mirrored every 24 hours off, um, off the Darwin server and then look at all of the sites that have been surveyed previously and sort of look at the relationships between those centroids on the map to build pictures of the dreamings that traveled across country 
and you know work accordingly with communities to protect those sites from destruction. Then when I went into native title, which is a litigious um, sort of way of protecting and claiming land, the stakes got raised significantly because there's no guarantee. You actually have to prove to a judge and to a legal team that community traditional owners, community traditional owners have rights in that land. So it's a much more proactive exercise, much higher threshold of evidence and requires really creative and forceful exploratory work with both GIS and um, databasing technologies. And of course, you've got almost zero budget because you're not working with the statute. You're self-funded, basically. These are community-controlled organisations in the native title space. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that a lot at Winyama um, as well, just how that native title process and the mapping element of that is so intense for, for community groups. Um, and if anyone's listening and needs any assistance with that, just head to the Winyama website. There's a few blogs about this. Um, Darren, you gave the example before of using maps to communicate um, Indigenous health initiatives and, and ways that we can enact positive change in that space. I'm interested to know maybe some of the other key applications or areas where you feel like mapping is most useful for Indigenous data. So that could be language or, or population movements, um, Any anything else that springs to mind for you? Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And um, because I've worked with tech for a long time, um, you know, I first started using computers 37 years ago when I turned 15. I'd always be looking into the future and going, well, what's possible? Um, if we can't do it now, doesn't mean we can't do it yet. So in part of my job in um, when I was at Department of Health and Human Services at the Victorian State Government, I was pulled in to work on a lot of uh, projects that didn't, that weren't specifically ab related to Aboriginal people. So I worked on doing some mapping for the medically supervised injecting room. So I'd be given um, data from Ambulance Victoria and related to um, call-outs for ambulances where there was an overdose and um, it was suspected that it was opioid-related, so naloxone would be delivered. So we um, looked at the data 18 months before the room opened and then 18 months after. Um, I was very fortunate that I was able to be part of the evaluation team, so I actually went and got to interview um, some of the people that were using that room. So I very had a really, really in-depth understanding not just of the data itself but the context within which that data existed um so i did a lot of mapping on that done other projects such as the social landlord project um some other stuff like uh there's a, a, a sign up that you can do by gps for monitoring um opioids and and you know obviously the um uh, prescription related opioids so i did a lot of work on that it's called the safe scripts program so because of my um, GIS skills, I kept getting pulled into other projects saying, can you map this, can you map that? Um, and now that I'm, I'm out of outside of that environment in a very intellectually freed up approach now, I'm starting to have visions of using uh, a process called ensemble data modeling. So it's basically you've got you know, data visualization software, data management software, and data analytics software. And you're getting these to work in a very symbiotic relationship. And I use a piece of open source software called Blender. It's a 3D animation software I've been using for quite a while. And I almost lost my mind when I found out they have a GIS plugin. So it basically means you can get a free Mapbox account with a token, go and pull down a bounding box of anywhere on the face of the planet, and you can map that in three dimensions. And then you can place objects in it. So my vision is, when I think of it like this, 
my country, where I'm from, Buddy Mayam, there's a place called Wardaga. That's my spiritual home. There is an Indigenous protected area around that. And I can imagine in my head, this is a product that I can create. And I'm sure that plenty of other younger followers out there, coding skills, you know, 3D animation, that instead of just having a map, you have a three-dimensional depiction of that area and you can animate it over time. So I could almost go back in time and place my ancestors in that vision, that three-dimensional vision and say, in the mornings, just as the sunrise, my ancestors, my buddy, my ancestors, they would get up and they would walk and they would know what to look for. They would look for a thing called bimba. Bimba is, it's like a bush lolly. It grows on the trees. It's almost like a sap. The best time to look for it is either first thing in the morning or late at night when the sun's on a particular angle, because we call it bush gold, because when the sun hits it, it lights up from a mile away. And that could be recreated in a digital ecosphere. And that data that you embed into that is not just from tens of thousands of years ago. It can be from right now too. So that's kind of the vision that I see that we as Aboriginal people and the way that we connect to the land can be recreated in these spaces and shared more broadly. And I'll give you this one other little vision that I have too, because I thought about this the other day. I was involved in a thing called Pine of Science and they were talking about Indigenous data sovereignty. And I was thinking to myself, well, um, part of it was AI. Imagine we have AI or artificial intelligence enhanced drones that would patrol sacred sites and they would become a sentinel system that protected those sites and warned us and said, hang on, this mining company is about to destroy that site. I mean, that's the potential for technology. And when you combine all those different things and there's data, there's AI, there's tech, there's all of that, but still it's a way that we can protect our knowledge. Absolutely. It's actually something we um, have been talking around with Andrew as well recently, just as a little side note, um, is that, and I'm really glad that you raised it, is 3D heritage visualisation. And how can we be in the lines of work that we are, Darren and James, like it'd be educating these large um, companies about the country that they're operating on. How can we show that to them with traditional owners also helping with the process about showing people what's on that land and educating those teams about what's there before any exploration work is being done, before anything happens in that space. Um, so that's something Andrew's thinking about a lot and doing a lot of um, discovery work with some of these big companies. I'm really, I mean, despite their shortcomings, a lot of the time I'm really happy to to report that a lot of them are asking that question now um, for obvious reasons. But um, yeah, people are coming to the table a little bit more on that about wanting to understand the country that they work on and they operate on and, and educating their teams and working with traditional owners more closely. On that note as well, we're also about to release a, um, a bit of a case study on the Winyama website, which just documents heritage in a different way. Um, and it's one of Andrew's personal projects, which is called Hearing Histories, which he did do with Sally Treloyne from University of Melbourne um, about the Tabi songs um, from where he's from, which is Nalama country, and using a map, a 3D map to, to go around country and go to different places where these Tabi songs are, have been written about and be able to access that archival, um, those archival songs on the map and, and share that with the community. So it's a really cool project. I'll link it in the show notes as well. James, did you have anything else you wanted to add to this discussion as well for other applications for maps here? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Darren, um, talking about the utility of exploratory research. So drawing on a wide variety of different data assets and looking at different innovative linkage opportunities, stacking different um, software platforms together like Blender, for example, with different GIS uh, platforms. And I guess I, one of the um, really important learnings that I had was moving from a highly regulated statutory environment in the Northern Territory where we had dedicated GIS support staff, we had dedicated tech teams for you know, designing and building those Oracle databases and linking them together with ArcGIS and taking care of all of that. So that when you know, us fieldwork grants hit the road in our troop carriers with our um, GPSs, you know, all we had to do was register the centroids, make sure they're in the you know, correct projections and then come back and load them into pre-designed fields, right? But it was very, very inspiring. When I, when I went over to work in Native Title, none of those resources were available. So we had to build from scratch. And the other thing that didn't exist was not, not just, you know, we didn't have the software licenses or any um, specialized um, expertise in-house. We also didn't have any data management systems of any kind. So I walked into this um, office in Redfern they had what was called the compactus room and it was just overflowing with document boxes with loose bits of paper floating around, you know, and there were photocopies of photocopies of photocopies, you know, you'd have duplicates of the same document. Um, there was bits and pieces all over the place, which is crazy because it was a, ostensibly a, a, a legal practice. It was a law firm that I got to work for. You know, lawyers are supposed to be really good at keeping track of their records, right? So what I found in the compactus room was a very old copy of FileMaker and, uh, I thought, okay, well, I know FileMaker is a relational databasing platform. That's about all I knew. And over the course of a few weeks, taught myself how to model it, got uh, my line manager's approval to um, cannibalize an old desktop PC that was sitting in a room cupboard, and then rigged it up to the LAN network, and then got the other researchers in the team. There's one historian in particular who's continued, was and still is very, very brilliant at his job to log on and begin contributing you know, all of the uh, lit reviews and consultations that he was doing into this little FileMaker solution. And it gradually grew, we tweaked it and we systematized it. And as the filing was brought back under control, we began digitizing everything, you know, indexing stuff. And this is before um, academic journals had really seriously begun to digitize. So we spent a lot of time in the university library digitizing these very, very old ethnographic articles from the late 19th century and then building timelines or temporal maps, if you like, of documentation of the same communities, the same mythology, um, the same areas of land. And then at that time, I think we were still using MapInfo. The license ran out, but with the money we saved on not paying the MapInfo license, we were able to buy a secondhand server, right? And then things just exploded. And suddenly we found ourselves building the largest population model of traditional owners anywhere in the country. And by the time I left that organization, we had a population model for traditional owners of over 100,000 people. And along the way, by innovating with um, open source software like QGIS instead of MapInfo and using FileMaker Server um, and innovating with outputting KML to Google Earth, which is free, we found that we could communicate, because Google Earth's a communication tool. It's designed to be as intelligible to a retail audience as possible. We could actually change the minds of judges and lawyers and 
um, skeptical community members, you know, where there was disagreement in the community about the validity of certain people and certain communities' connection to certain bits of land. Because you could suddenly show in um, photographic, aerial photographic fly-through contexts where people's heritage was distributed and where very old song recordings and myth recordings had been conducted in the past to corroborate those genealogical connections. And it was really, really compelling, but it was only possible because we had to innovate from the ground up in consultation with community. What, what I think the fashionable term at the moment is co-design. That's amazing. Love the stories of hearing maps being used for truth-telling and hearing how much hard work went into that as well is um, absolutely amazing. Hey, you guys actually um, have been super involved with Indigenous Mapping Workshop now for probably just under a year, I feel. It was just before the Indigenous Mapping Workshop On Demand launched in September last year. But there's a new Memorandum of Understanding or MOU with Winyama. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the partnership and, and what you guys are hoping to get out of that partnership with Indigenous Mapping Workshop? James played a really pivotal role in um, establishing these MOUs with the different organisations. And um, I think one of the big um, loaded questions here is how can we use GIS for better understanding of health data? I think that's kind of that that frontier that's it, it's on people's minds, but the marriage just hasn't quite happened yet. And I'm speaking from my experience in working in the state government of Victoria, where they did have GIS units, but a, quite a lot of it was not embedding health data into those maps. And when we think about the experience that myself, James, Marcia, Kristen, uh, Levi, Ingrid, could name them all, um, Vanessa, all the team have, we're thinking of how are these different moving parts going to coalesce into a benefit to Aboriginal community organisations? James made the comment about um, innovating. What we know with a lot of Aboriginal organisations, and I did work with one, is that they usually work run off the smell of an oily rag. So being able to have those really expensive subscriptions to, you know, high quality technology um, has been a bit of a, has had a hamstringing effect on Aboriginal organisations in, in many ways. Um, obviously, there's plenty of Aboriginal organisations that have been really innovative. They've found ways around it but it's, it's forced that innovation. And it really, you know, the explanation and, and the example that James just gave is sometimes, you know, what's that saying? Um, uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. When you have to get the job done, you find a way. And Aboriginal organisations have never really been, they've always been under-resourced and overburdened. So they've had to find a way. And, and that includes, you know, innovative ways of using technology. What it means is that, you know, an organisation like Winyama, who's very familiar with the Aboriginal community, the symbiotic relationship that we now have um, with you guys is, is really perfect because, you know, that comes down to, I have years and years of experience with health data. You guys have years and years and years of experience with GIS. And being able to apply a GIS capability to health data, not only tells you where, but it starts to help you build the why. Because, I mean, a lot of the times we know the why, but we don't know where. And that example I gave before about Aboriginal people using their feet choose why they don't use a particular service, it doesn't, it, it, allow, it will, at some point, I guess, um, allow us to, you know, build upon our relationship with your organisation to go, let's 
do look at machine learning and, and let's use clustering algorithms to look at where Aboriginal people live, what are the services they're using, what are the services they're not using. And, you know, in a country that has really um, taken a long time to accept that there is incredible systemic racism in this country, that manifests in service delivery and substandard service delivery for Aboriginal people. And, and GIS really, really brings that out. So I think, you know, this relationship that we have with you is one that I really wanted because I am a bit of a GIS nut. I know James is a bit of a mapping nut and, you know, network analysis as well. So I think it's a perfect kind of relationship. And I mean, I'm talking about more casually, you know, but I, I'll probably throw to James and he could maybe talk about that, you know, how how this particular MOU with Winyama is sits very well within all the other relationships that, you know, he's taken a lot of time to develop over time. So maybe James, you'll jump in here and... Yeah, I mean, for sure. No, look, um, it was amazing to have Andrew reach out um, to the IDN because, you know, what's happening at Winyama is so innovative it, and free of the kind of burdensome assumptions that tend to come from statutory providers, you know, um, some of which work well, but some of which don't work well at all but also through corporate partnerships um, you know, across the sector um, is also empowered in a way that community organisations are still struggling to be empowered by the private sector because a lot of them tend to be locked in their funding models to using you know, particular kinds of software under particular kinds of constraints. I was really shocked to see um, an example of the um, uh, COVID spread modeling that's going on in Victoria using Visio the other day. I couldn't quite believe it. <laughs> um, you know, I was like, no, they're not using Visio. You can't be. So I'm a network analyst, right? Um, and I specialize, particularly because I come from population health and native tribal, I specialize in kinship network modeling because, you know, everyone knows. Indigenous communities are kinship-based. And if non-Indigenous people are honest with themselves, they would also accept that they're kinship-based, but they say that, you know, oh, you know, it's their mostly transactional or, you know, um, uh, economic relationships. But no, I mean, it's all kinship. The, the point is, is there is amazing network modeling software that would be so useful under pandemic conditions for modeling disease distribution, and it's not being used by the relevant health authorities, you know, it's like blew my mind. So what's really amazing about Winyama is they're not restricted to that kind of group think, you know, that kind of um, welded on um, licensing deal they might have. But look, there's different, there's different bits of software around that are, are suitable for different conditions. There's also bits of software that are incredible that just aren't getting used because they've never been tested. And this goes back to the innovation question, never been tested under unique conditions. And by unique conditions, you know, I think we can talk a little bit about you know, the, the history of this country. And like Darren was alluding to before, how much denial there is about the absolute travesty, right, of what's happened here and, and the situation that, that uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people are in as a consequence of that denial, you know, of particularly British descended people like myself refusing to face up to, to the horrors of what, what what have occurred, but then also bringing with that denial this refusal to kind of like let organisations like Winyama actually break free and do this incredible exploratory work, you know, with partners that are not part of that history, you know, corporations, other community controlled organisations, whether they're Australian or international, 
that are free to innovate, free to think outside the box and do incredible work and work with incredible people like Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're 100% right. And the other thing is is, is that um, the, the beautiful thing about Indigenous Mapping Workshop and just going back to some of the tools you guys were mentioning is a lot of the stuff that we train on um, for Indigenous Mapping Workshop is free to use. So QGIS, which you mentioned before, we've got Google Earth and, you know, that KML sort of thing that you were saying, James. And it gets me even thinking about, um, Darren, what you were saying about health data and even just, um, you know, Winyama and um, and you guys crafting just a very simple introductory course into showing communities what open health data is out there that they can use. Hey, did you know that you can access these um, data sets and you can be using that to help your communities and then sort of crafting a course around that would be a really, really special thing. Yeah, 100%. I think that's where the magic happens. You know, Darren, cut me off, please. But, you know, walking into a into a room with people who are full of great ideas but haven't had the opportunity to train up or to explore software that's available. And also, you know, free of the intimidation that comes with walking into a, you know, oh, you're going to get trained on using Visio. It's like, oh, God, really? <laughs> yeah. And, and look, James, if I just jump in here and make a point, because I've kind of been champing at the bit to say this the whole time, um, I, I, I've been asked constantly how I got into this line of work. How did I end up doing data visualization? And, you know, it's kind of been a little bit accidental, but by the same token, if I think back to, you know, when I was a kid and mum and dad used to drive us here, there and everywhere, but they would stop at all these different places in between and they would get us kids out of the car and they'd take us over to a spot and they'd tell us a story. So even though I didn't have a GPS device in my pocket at the time, like I do every day and most of us do these days with a mobile phone, they were still anchoring points using stories and using the passing of time and the passing of distance. And that it just feels so natural for me and I'm sure that a lot of black fellas and you know, even if they're, you know, driving in a car, not, you know, having walked like our ancestors did, they would still traverse temporal and spatial features of this country. And I think that we have an unspoken pedigree in this area that can be brought to bear on this space. And um, I'm waiting for that revolution to happen. We know that, you know, based upon, you know, the history of cartography, and the way that they used it as a colonization tool. Um, we haven't quite decolonized that world yet, but I think, you know, our relationship with you fellas, you know, where we give you a national platform that you can think about and, and spread out and be promoted and the amazing stuff that you're putting on your website to upskill Aboriginal people, which is a value add to the real value of their knowledge and ability is seeing the land through time and space. And you can manifest that in the digital world. And, and us Blackfellas have a pedigree and there's tens of thousands of years in pedigree. Thank you for sharing that as well, Darren. It's really awesome that you said that. And it's a hundred percent true as well. And unfortunately it's all we've got time for. And I'm feeling like there's a whole nother podcast episode here and we all of us could keep going all day. Um, but we don't have time for that today, but I'd love to have you guys back and Hey, we could probably even try getting Marcia on here. That would be pretty cool. Um, see if she's free. She's a very busy lady. I know. Um, do you guys just quickly, before we wrap up, do you have any sort of resources that you'd recommend, um, anyone to, to learn about Indigenous Data Network that you'd like to um, recommend? I know, James, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a Vimeo um, recording. I'll get that from you. We'll pop that in the show notes. 
Um, is there anything else you guys would like to direct our listeners to? Oh, well, I mean, you know, definitely go check out the website, have a look at the position papers, um, the ethics and protocols papers that are on there. They're designed as handouts, so they're like one to two pages each, very digestible. There's links to a whole bunch of news and events, so other, you know, uh, papers that Darren and I and other members of the network have given. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good starting point, Darren. Do you, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, James, is thanks for that. Um, I think there's a lot of um, efforts that we're putting over a period of time. So James and I have co-presented. So there's a lot of uh, conferences and talks that we've done, um, which expand on the role and intent of the Indigenous Data Network. So a lot of that's been in done. So we can obviously um, you know, provide some links to that kind of information as well. And those are in different contexts and, and how the Indigenous Data Network is working its way to a point where we're creating not just a network, but a real movement in Indigenous data, you know, sovereignty and governance um, and all the other complexities to come with it. So, um, and, and James and I work really well and we've done lots of really rewarding presentations. I was about to say amazing, but I don't want to promote myself. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, really rewarding examples of where people will ask us, how does Indigenous data relate to artificial intelligence or other domains of interest? So there's lots out there um, and we can certainly make that available. Awesome. We'll get those links from you both um, and pop them in the show notes. But hey, you guys, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciated the conversation. It was really, really interesting. Um, and I hope we'll have you back on again sometime. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks, Sarah. It was great. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate the opportunity. And for our listeners, if you really enjoyed listening to this conversation today, don't forget there'll be more of these. So just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.